Morning, beloved. We love you more than you know. And today we resume our series through the Gospel of Mark. You know, in the past few months, we've had some special topical series where for the month of May, we focused on uh, missions. It was our, our missions month. And <clears throat> last month, the month of June, we focused on uh, the topic of family. But now we're going to dive back in into the Gospel of Mark. And there are some connections. Uh, there are some connections to our themes where today we look at, we've entitled the sermon, or I've entitled the sermon, Jesus Sends Out His First Short-Term Mission Team. And that's what we're going to see from Mark chapter 6, because Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, that includes Judas that would betray him, out on missions for the very first time. And we call it short-term because they are to go out, they are to proclaim the message of repentance in the name of Jesus, calling people to repent and call, come to Christ, and then the 12 were back to Jesus. So it was like on-the-job training. They would preach and come back. So if you have God's word, will you please take it and turn with me now to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. It's a short passage. If you'll just allow me to read that to you, uh, you can remain seated, and I'll just read it. And will you just receive it? Will you just receive it with your heart um, as I read it to you? And will you look look at your scriptures as well? Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except for a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals, I love that, and not to put on tunics. Verse 10, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. First, let's, let me begin with who are the twelve, because this is who Jesus called. Okay, The twelve here refer to Jesus' twelve apostles. Okay, So these are Jesus' Twelve apostles. And this is from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Now there's a screen, there's a slide, and the clicker is not working right now, but um, you can look on the screen. And it's too much of a passage to put on uh, a PowerPoint because the font would be too small. So I do invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, uh, but I'll just give you the summary at this point, right, where, where I've printed for you on the outline the passage as well for those of you who don't have your Bibles. Okay, so you can look at it right here as well so you can understand because we've been out of Mark for a while, so I do want to trace back to look. If you look at Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, notice that you see this, this word, he called them. And you're going to see that today too. He called them. He called them. That's why I paused when I read it, because he called them. There's a special calling. He went up on a mountain, he called to him those whom he desired. So you see here first that Jesus called, and he didn't call people who wanted him. You see, the disciples weren't looking for Jesus. 
The disciples were fishermen or they were tax collectors. They were doing their own stuff. They had their own lives, just like many of us. Right? They, we have our own lives. We have our own uh, schedule. We have our own calendar. They weren't looking to follow him in the unique way that he was calling them to. They weren't looking for a new mission in life. They weren't looking for a new family in life. But Jesus called him, and those whom he called, he desired them. So he willed and planned to call the elect. It's written here in the scriptures, right? He called those whom he sovereignly desired. Because he called them, and because he desired them, they responded by coming to him. That's very important. Because if anybody calls you to go on a mission, and if Jesus calls you to go make disciples, and if he calls you to go and proclaim him, you're not going to go unless he's changed your heart. Unless there's something spiritual that happens within you. Unless there's a conviction that the person who's called you is the Lord and he wants to completely change your life because he is in control of all things. And then in verse 14, look at all the sovereign language. Sovereign means divine control. Look at it. It says he called, he desired, he appointed. There is no free will here. There is a free response. But that's what happens if Jesus says, hey, it's up to you follow me, nobody's going to follow. But if Jesus says, follow me, and the Holy Spirit has converted your heart, then you respond, right? You respond freely because your hearts have been freed and rescued from the bondage of sin and death. And so look at the language he appointed, and then he he named them apostles. What does apostles mean? Sent one. Sent one. Right? Apostle means a sent one. So he calls them, he desired them, he appointed them, and then he sends them so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. So already in Mark chapter 3, it's already planned, sovereignly planned, what's going to happen in Mark chapter 6. So you're in Mark chapter 6, it says Jesus called them and he sent them, but then here it already said three chapters before that, that he brought the disciples, that they might be with him, so that he is planning to send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And so you need to see this because Mark chapter 3 means Jesus has already planned what's going to happen in Mark chapter 6, which means the disciples are not going in their own power. They don't have to worry. They're not going depending on them on themselves. They're not going alone. But Jesus has planned for his children the mission, but also the provisions and the power and everything that they would have. And then he names them. It's appointed the 12, right? So then he says, there's Simon. I'm not going to read all the footnoting in there for you, but it's basically Simon Peter, James, John. That's the big three, okay? Those are the leaders of the apostles. Then there's Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, uh, not the English muffin guy, but he, the guy who doubted Jesus, right? And then another James. So there's two James. The Lakers want to get a James too um, as well, but, you know, whatever. Um, so there's another James, but there's not a George, okay? There's Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, so then there's 12 of them, and one of them betrays him, and he calls them as his disciples. Now, with this background and context, go to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 and 13, Jesus sends out the 12 he's already desired and called and trained, and walked with, and told them, I'm going to send you. 
and told them, you're going to go preach. And they're like, what are we going to preach? And Jesus is like, well, just watch. Watch me. And Jesus is saying, oh. and they're going to say, what authority? Just watch and see. And Jesus ministers, and they learn, and he disciples them. And then he says, go. And so even before we open with the first words in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, Already Jesus is not sending out his disciples without first discipling them. Relationally. Desiring them, drawing them, walking with them. It's all part of his plan. Now you go to verse 7 and we see point number 1. Point number 1 is go. Cooperating with the authority of Christ. They don't go on their own authority. They go sent by Christ. Now, Let's go again to Mark chapter 6, verse 7. Notice the similar language of Mark chapter 3. It says, and he called the 12. And it, and it doesn't say he just dispersed them, right? It says, he called the 12. And notice the key phrase, he began to send them. What do you mean by that? Well, let's first talk about the calling. And then let's bring practical information, right? So, First off, Jesus authorized the mission. They aren't going on their own free will. They wouldn't want to go. Uh, it would be scary to go. If Jesus said, hey, you guys go, why would you go? Unless you knew him personally, unless he's changed your heart, unless he's taught you and equipped you and given you the specific instructions. So he's called the 12, right? This word call is very special. It's very special because there's, there's deeper meaning here. It's very significant. First, he called them to be his disciples. We saw that in Mark chapter 3. Remember earlier in Mark, many of his disciples were fishermen, and he taught them in Mark chapter 4. Look, I'm calling you, and I'm going to teach you that I can perform miracles. That even when there's not a lot of fish out there, there's going to be a lot of fish. Just put out your nets. You can't generate the fish. You can't push the fish into your net. But just put out the net. Just put out the message. I will draw people's hearts. I will fill the net, Jesus is teaching them. And the number one lesson Jesus says is you're not in control, he is, right? That's number one lesson is the sovereignty of God. Discipleship, lesson number one, you are not in control, Jesus is. We are not Lord, we are disciples. He's the master, he is the sovereign Lord. Lordship and sovereignty is the number one lesson that he teaches his disciples. He already taught them that in Mark chapter four. Right when he called them specifically, and then he says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. You see that specific calling. There's a calling. He called them to himself. He called them to be fishers of men. He explains that and shows it to them. And there are others who weren't fishermen. Right? There were other disciples that I mentioned. They come from different backgrounds. But all in all, they they were not looking for Jesus. Jesus went looking for them. And so there's an effectual call. Second, in this specific passage, he gives them a call to be apostles. When he says, I began to send them. I'm giving them training as apostles. These 12 specific men would be the leaders and the founders of Jesus' church. And so there's two callings. There's a calling to follow him and to be fishers of men. And the second, they would be his apostles. They would be his sent ones. And notice the language he began to send them. Why? That's discipleship. Right? Jesus is not done yet. There's going to be a day where Jesus dies, he resurrects, he goes to heaven, and he leaves his Holy Spirit. So Jesus never leaves his people alone. But he's no longer physically present with them at that time. But right now, what he's doing is say, you guys go. 
Go and preach, go and proclaim. Then you're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. What did you learn? What did you struggle with? How can we improve this? Right? Obviously, he's in control the whole time. So he's teaching them. He's teaching them lessons on what it means to go. What do you mean go? Well, I'm going to teach you. So he began to send them because he would send them again and again and again until after his resurrection, he stands up there and says, Matthew 28, 19, 20, all authority has been given unto me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you till the end of the age. Go. The Holy Spirit's going to be with you. Right? And then he has, and then there's Acts chapter 1 where he tells them once again, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of this earth. And then, he's, and, he, and then the Holy Spirit comes and that's how Jesus is with his people. But Jesus never leaves us alone. And, and that's why you see here the, the, the point cooperating. I like the word cooperating because we don't just have to go on twos. But notice that he sends them two by two. Why does he do that? He sends them in pairs. You don't have to go do God's work in pairs, but the whole idea here is that we're never alone. There's a lot of, the, there's, there's a theological reason and there's a lot of practical reasons. The first is a theological reason, okay, which, which carries multiple levels of significance. Sending two witnesses to, to affirm and confirm a report. So they're talking about Jesus. They're going to preach about Jesus or to confirm a message. That's based in the Old Testament. I'll just give you one passage. Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, where the Old Testament law commands that two or three witnesses are necessary to confirm any charge of a crime or any violation of a law. So if you were to go and report someone that they committed a crime or violated the law, you would need two witnesses at minimum to verify the report. And since Jesus' disciples are going to go and talk about Jesus, there's this man, Jesus, he's healing, he's teaching, but he's not just a healer, he's not just a rabbi, he's not just a prophet, he is Messiah. He is the one that the Old Testament predicted. He is the one who is the true Israelite. He is the heir of Abraham. And they would need confirmation and affirmation. And so Jesus says, you're going to go in two. And in many ways, if Jesus were to be criticized in any way, Jesus would be able to say, no, 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 I follow the Old Testament law. So if the Pharisees say, look, you violate the law, Jesus not only literally obeys the law, he sends them in twos, but also, he affirms the spirit of the law. You don't go alone, and, and God is with you, and God needs to confirm it. But secondly, there's a practical implication, which is Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 10. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 10, let me read that to you. It says, two are better than one, because they have a good reward, a reward for their toil. So you see, there's, there's work, right? So when you talk about mission work, two are better than one. Verse 10. For if they fall, meaning if one gets discouraged because of rejection or because they're tired or because they need accountability or they need encouragement or you, or one person can't handle all the work, it says in Ecclesiastes 4 verse 10, for they will fall. If, if they will fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls 
and has not another to lift him up. So again, whether it's accountability, whether it's stumbling, or whether it's a need for encouragement. And so Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. And there's great value, and there's a great wisdom. There's great wisdom in companionship and teamwork. Teamwork is better than a solo endeavor. That's why LeBron doesn't want to come by himself. Okay, It's safer to have someone else with you. And in this context, there's a traveling mate. Right? Serving God can be very lonely. And that's why it's important to have a ministry team and ministry teams. This is God's design for leadership. One, you're never alone because you have the Holy Spirit. Jesus says there's three key apostles. Then there's 12 apostles. Right? And then there's 12 apostles, not one pope. And then Jesus' church would later be governed by a plurality of elders or pastors. Right? So it's always team ministry. It's always team. There's no solo. There's no one. And, and that's Jesus' design. And even in the beginning stages of sending out his apostles, Jesus is teaching, you don't go by yourself. You need support. You need people with you. And, that, and you're going to see this continue, right? But he, he doesn't just send them with, it, with authority. He doesn't just say, look, I authorized you. I called you, and I send you. Now tell everybody that I sent you. And people are like, how are they going to believe us, Jesus? You know, how, there's a lot of people who don't know about you yet. How are they going to know? How are they going to know that our message has any power? We don't have the power that you have. And Jesus says, no. Look at verse 13. Go down to verse 13. So first, at the end of verse 7, Jesus says, I, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Right? That's demons. And then look at verse 13. And it says, so they went, they obeyed, they trusted God. It says, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Notice that their message was authenticated with divine miracles. So how do you know that these men are authorized by the Messiah? Well, throughout Mark, Jesus is teaching, right? Jesus himself, when he taught, it was often accompanied by the casting out of demons and the healing of diseases. And so the disciples would would look exactly like Jesus' ministry. Their ministry would mirror Jesus' ministry. Jesus went out and preached and taught, but he cast out demons and he healed. And so the same thing in this context, in the original context for the disciples. Jesus says, you're not going to be alone. Look, I know that I'm not going to go there physically with you, but I'm going to send you with the power of the Spirit, and, and you are going to go with my authority, Jesus says, and I will show that through the the performance of miracles, right? Well, what's up with the anointing with oil? I want you to see something significant. Look throughout Mark, and you can notice that there's not a place, I don't, I mean, maybe I just don't see it, but I don't see a place where Jesus goes around anointing with oil. And so that led to some more study. Why Why are the apostles anointing people's head with oil? It's to show that their authority was not their own, right? And this is based in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when when kings were anointed with olive oil on their heads, it was a symbol of God's presence. It was a symbol that God had vested 
his divine authority upon that king, so King David when he was anointed, or a prophet was anointed to speak on behalf of the Lord. And no wonder Jesus didn't need to go around anointing people, right? Because he spoke on his own authority. He healed on his own authority. He exercised demons on his own authority. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign Lord. But the disciples are going with Jesus's authority, right? So they're anointing people with oil to show that it's not their power, it's Jesus's power. It's not their authority, it's Jesus's authority. And so Jesus has full authority. So when you look at some of this stuff, when you look at this anointing with oil, not only does it teach you something about discipleship, which means we go in the authority of God's word, with the authority of God's word, but it teaches you something about Jesus. It teaches you who Jesus is, that he is the king. He's the ultimate one that sends his disciples. So point number one, go cooperating, co, two by two, but it could be more than two, with the authority of Christ. Yet Christ doesn't send you out with just his authority. He provides his messengers with provision. And this leads to point number two. Point number two this morning is go depending on the provision of Christ. Go depending on the provision of Christ. Notice verse 8. He charged them. That's a command, right? He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals. I love that, like I said, um, not to put on two tunics, right? Because I love to wear sandals, uh, but, you know, I don't wear sandals on Sundays. Um, but I think that's just being uh, with our culture. But Jesus told them to wear sandals. And I looked it up, and it's not like because he commanded them to wear sandals. It's what they wore back then. Okay, uh, But Jesus instructs them to take nothing but a staff. right? And this is most likely for protection. It could be for warding off animals. So, so as they're walking and hiking along, uh, a dangerous animal comes along, and they could use the staff to, to hit. It's for protection. Or if someone wants to rob you, and there's two of you, you can go like kung fu fighter all of a sudden, right? And so all of a sudden, you got two staffs, you're bam, 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 from two sides, okay? So, so they, they take a staff, right? But why no bread, bag, or money in their belts? When you typically travel, this is what you would bring. You would bring bread, meaning you're going to bring something to eat on the way, right? You would bring a bag to carry the bread. So it's all logical. It's all common sense. You would bring money, and just like you put money in your purse or wallet, they would put it in their belts. But what Jesus is saying is don't take anything other than what you have on your body. So bring a staff, and then wear the sandals that you're already wearing, and don't put on two tunics, meaning you don't need a jacket, you don't need an extra t-shirt for tomorrow. But if you and I traveled, we would bring extra clothing. Jesus is saying, go as you are. Whatever you have right now, just go. Why? Because Jesus wants to teach them a lesson. He wants to say, I will provide for you. Now, you might say, Jesus, what are you talking about? And all Jesus has to do is say, remember Mark chapter 3, that I desired you, I called you, I showed you. Mark chapter 4, I told you. To be fisher, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men, Jesus said. And when there was no fish, you had more fish than you can think of. And then miracle after miracle, and Jesus is saying, I will provide for you. If not through the generosity of my, of people, I will provide you for a divine miracle. So Jesus is teaching them that when you go for Christ, you go together. Going together, you're never alone. But also when it comes to resources, Jesus is going to provide for you. Okay, and Jesus plans everything 
beforehand. And so I firmly believe that as these disciples went into the city and city, that God already had preordained people who would receive them in. That's the way the Lord works. Right? The, the Lord has prepared for his disciples, and that's why God tells them, you know, when you go in, you're going to see in a moment, when you go in, stay at the first house that receives you. Okay, so point number three. So go, depending on the provision of Christ, which includes where they would stay, and leading us to point number three. Point number three is go staying where you are received for Christ. There's going to be plenty of rejection for Christ, but go staying where you're received for Christ. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, when you roll up into a his house, when you roll into a house, stay there until you depart from there. What do you mean? Why, why don't I stay in a motel? Why would I bother someone and go into their house? Once again, there's several levels of significance. First, they're instructed to stay specifically in a house, not a hotel, and not a motel, not a bar, right? Because back then, inns were typically dangerous places. Inns were combined with the idea of a tavern. Sometimes uh, it was a brothel. Uh, so there would be sexual activity. There would be prostitution. There would also be where criminals gathered. And so when you say, let's go eat, that's why hospitality was so important. So, so when you see in the New Testament all these commands that the church has to be hospitable. Look, if another Christian came into Walnut and it was 2,000 years ago, there is no restaurant. There might not be a restaurant or a hotel that's safe because that's where shady activity might happen. So the safest place would be for another Christian to take you into their home and to feed you and to care for you. And so this whole idea of hospitality, Jesus has already prepared beforehand because at this point the church is not established yet so he said to them when you enter into a house stay there they're going to receive you stay there until you depart from there so that's the first reason the second reason why he tells them to stay in a house and, and to stay at one house is that jesus wants his disciples to be content with what he provides for them okay given their power to heal and to cast out demons they would no doubt be invited and tempted to upgrade their own comfort and their own luxury. They were to avoid the sense of moving from house to house just to receive money, comfort, or pampering, right, if you will. You know, like you're, you're, you're performing miracles, you're healing people, you're like a celebrity in some sense. And someone will say, hey, come to my house, I'll give you some more money, come to my house, I'd love to host a celebrity. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 the first house that takes you, even before you become famous or well-known, you stay there. Don't be tempted by greed or money. And what Jesus wanted to do was guard his disciples against manipulation and against the, the temptation to seek greater accommodation. And staying at one place would distinguish his disciples from false teachers. And so we see that today with the health and wealth gospel and with the prosperity gospel. You don't need a $40 million jet to do missions. Okay, You don't need... A mansion and a castle where the IRS is all of a sudden looking at you to do God's work. And you don't need five Lamborghinis to be a pastor. But you see that with some of the health and wealth TV pastors and what they have. And so clearly there is a difference between depending on God's provision versus using the power 
and the message of the gospel to gain personal gain and to advance yourself. And Jesus is saying to his disciples from a very early stage, your best life is not now. It's in the kingdom of heaven to come. Okay. And so he's teaching them to be content and to, and to follow him. Okay. And so, so go point number three, go staying where you are received for Christ. But we know that there's going to be a lot of rejection. So that leads us to point number four. Point number four this morning is go expecting some places you'll be received, stay there, but go expecting the rejection of Christ. We see this in verse 11. Notice verse 11, if if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet. So maybe that's why they need sandals as a testimony against them. Now look at verse 11. um, If you look carefully, Jesus is providing instructions for how to deal with rejection. I think this is very important for me and you. Because when we go, we don't go on our own authority. We go on Jesus' authority. And when people reject us, if you're truly preaching the gospel, they're not rejecting the messenger. They're rejecting the message, which means they're rejecting the Messiah. Can't take that personally. People will reject Jesus. That's why they reject Jesus' followers. Now, Jesus prepared his disciples for this, didn't he? Last week, um, towards the end of the family sermon, Pastor Terrence spent a significant amount of time talking about Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, which is why we're not preaching that today, because he did a good job covering it already, that Jesus' own family rejected him. And Jesus' own hometown rejected him. Now, many in his family would come to believe him later, but they rejected him, and his hometown rejected him because of familiarity. They didn't reject him as a person. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, you're not welcome home. They welcomed him. In fact, it was because they welcomed him as the hometown child. They couldn't see that he was Messiah. They said, wow, aren't you Joseph and Mary's kid? Aren't you the carpenter? Dude, build us a house, man. Like, what are you talking about? This healing and Messiah stuff, right? They couldn't receive him. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples. He already taught them. He's saying, you're just like me. You're going on my behalf. What makes you think that if, they, if my own people rejected me, that they're not going to reject you? But you can't take it personally because if they rejected me, they will reject you. And if they reject the message, they've rejected the Messiah who sent you with the message. And that's why it's so important to go back to the calling. Jesus called them. Now, you and I are all called to salvation, to follow Christ. If you're a believer, you're called. And you're also called to make disciples. So this is not just for apostles and pastors and elders. But this is, this. there is a special calling, but then there's a general calling for all disciples of Jesus to know that if they reject us, when we share the gospel, right, we need to prepare for the rejection. So how do you prepare? Well, it says, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, don't do this literally. I mean, you're sharing the gospel somewhere, you're going to look, look for dirt all of a sudden and take off your shoes. And that's not what it's saying. This is, this is a uh, figure of speech that was, uh, that, that was a practice back then. It was common for Jews, for Jewish people, when they walk through Gentile territory, Upon re-entering Israel, they would shake off the dust of their sandals as a symbol of scorn because they considered the Gentiles as dirty and unclean. So it's like leaving 
contaminated area where you don't want to bring the dust of Gentile ter territory into Jewish territory. Now, we know that Jesus is upset at the Jews for failing to be a light to the Gentiles. But nonetheless, he's using this because he understands that they would understand it. So sometimes, you know, I'll joke around. So a couple years ago, I went on vacation to Boston. I'm a Laker fan. Uh, and I see the, the TD Garden. I think that's where the Boston Celtics played. So I don't have sandals on, but I'm just like, uh, I get off that bridge, a really nice bridge. I wipe myself. Every time if I ever go to San Francisco, same thing. Because I'm not a Warriors fan. I know there's some in here I love you. I'm not a Giants fan. Okay? I'm a Dodger fan. Right? So it's a joke. Okay? But, but the idea is, is it's contaminated. Celtic contamination. Right? So anyway, but I'll gladly take Jason Tatum any day. But it's a testimony against them. Now, there's something deeper here. Right? Where, where, it's shaking off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. What's that all about? Well, that's about judgment. And so when you, when you take in a serious note, Jesus is saying, if people truly reject the message, if they rejected the ones who have sent, then they've rejected the one who has sent them, and they've rejected the Messiah, if they rejected the Messiah on the day of judgment, when that person stands before God, before the judgment throne of God, and, and they say to God, God, when did you send messengers? God will say, remember, when you rejected my disciples when I sent them to you, when you rejected the missionaries, when you rejected that Christian that was evangelizing to you, you rejected me. And so, so it stands as a historical record, as a testimony against them on the day of judgment. And that's what that word means, that on the day of judgment, they will be reminded by God from heaven that they had a chance, but they rejected the messengers. And so we can't take it personally. In fact, that should, that should give us more compassion. So if we preach the gospel, or if we, should, if we try to disciple someone, or if we try to train someone, and they reject us, and we've done everything lovingly, and we've tried our best, we don't get mad at them. You cry for them. Your heart breaks for them. You love them more because if they don't change, it's not us that can change their hearts, but if they don't change, if the Holy Spirit doesn't change them, they're going to have to face eternal judgment. And that puts things into perspective. That you don't get mad. You love them. You love them more. Okay? And so, so we understand that. So go expecting the rejection of Christ. Now point number five is you'll be rejected. Why? Because the message is hard. That's why. Because the message is hard. Because the message is one of repentance. Go, point number five, proclaiming repentance for Christ. Repentance means change. And nobody likes change. Nobody wants to change. Okay? So look at verse 12. So they went and proclaimed that people should repent. That's not a popular language, beloved. The 12 obeyed Christ. They went and proclaimed the message of repentance. Repentance in this context refers to a turning of the heart, a recognition of sin, a recognition that we have fallen away from God and that we're far from God and that we need to turn our hearts and to come back to God. You know who preached this message? John the Baptist. This is exactly the same proto-gospel, the same proto-gospel that, that Jesus had John the Baptist preaching for him. Why is it a proto-gospel? 
I say it's proto because it's before the gospel is complete. What's the gospel? The gospel is Jesus came, he died for our sins, and he rose again. Therefore, you must respond with repentance, faith and repentance, right? But Jesus hasn't died yet. He hasn't resurrected yet. The gospel message still needs to be completed. So the pro, the forerunner is prepare your hearts for the Messiah. Prepare your hearts. And that was John the Baptist's message, is get ready. The Messiah is coming. Repent of your sins. That's the same message they're preaching. Only they know Jesus more, so they're talking about Jesus. They're talking about the Messiah. They're talking about his healing, right? And so repentance is not a popular message. It will be rejected. And so that's why Jesus prepares us for rejection. But repentance is an important one. Let me give you the big idea. And then some application. The big idea is trust that what Jesus, when Jesus sends you on mission, which is all of us, on the Great Commission, he will provide you with everything you need to accomplish his will. Now, where does this show up in our lives? Trust that when Jesus sends you a mission, he will provide you with everything you need. Okay? Everything you need to accomplish his will. First, sometimes his will is not what we expect. Success in the kingdom of God is obedience. Not converting people, because that's not our work. We can't do that. Success in the kingdom of God is not having a huge, big movement or church. Those things are good because Jesus brings it about. But that's not how you measure success. Success in God's kingdom is, is, is not even having people healed. Success in God's kingdom is obedience. Because in the very next passage, next week, Pastor Terrence is going to talk about John the Baptist being killed. Now, how many of you guys would look at John the Baptist as a failure? Anybody? How many of you guys would look at John the Baptist as successful? Jesus said he's probably the greatest man, right? Why was he successful? Well, he's going to get killed. A lot of us would say, well, that's mission failure. Gets arrested, gets killed. No, we see that he's successful because he was obedient. That's why, right? And so, so Jesus teaches his disciples that success is obedience. It begins with obedience. See, no one would ever say that John failed his mission. Because John's mission was specific. Go preach repentance, and I'll take care of the rest. That's what Jesus said. John's the forerunner to Jesus. John, your death is not going to save people. Mine will. But you just go get their hearts ready. You go stir them up. You go preach repentance. Guys, it's the same for us. Only we have the complete gospel. We go preach and proclaim Jesus saves. We be obedient to bring the right message. The Messiah saves. Second, where, where else does this show up? Everything in this passage shows that we're not alone. Jesus sent his apostles two by two. He gives provision. He provides instructions, specific instructions. Wear this. Don't wear this. Go here. Stay here. Don't leave the first house. He gives them specific instructions. He gives them a message. And then he authenticates their message with healings and miracles. And back then, the scriptures aren't canonized yet. They're not complete yet. So some of you are like, well, we don't have miracles today. Well, we do. But it's not always guaranteed, right? You're going to go to Starbucks, share the gospel, and maybe somebody won't get healed. You're not going to cast a demon out of the barista. 
You know, it's just maybe may not happen, or at least in America, right? So it could happen that you're praying for someone to be healed. They, they get healed by God, and then they get converted for the glory of God. But for many of us, we're like, wait a minute. Where's, where's our power? Well, you have to remember that back then, at this point, these disciples aren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit yet. They're simply sent. And so God's, Jesus' presence is with them. They're working through the power of the Spirit. But you and I, we have the Holy Spirit in us. Acts chapter 1 and then Acts chapter 2, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The other thing is we have the Spirit-inspired Word. So you're like, where's the instructions? It's here. Where's the warnings? Where to stay where? It's here. You know, how do we, how, and, and where's the miracle? Where's the miracle? Spirit-empowered, spirit-filled missionary, spirit-inspired word. And as people hear the spirit-inspired word, those who are converted by the spirit receive it with conviction. And over time, they change. That's the miracle. Let me show you a miracle. Let me show you a a very practical illustration. I'm going to tell you a story, but it's from the book of Acts. Okay, turn to turn to Acts chapter. You love stories, right? Turn to Acts, Acts. Chapter thirteen. Sorry, I was in Matthew because I just keep wanting to make disciples. Acts chapter 13. Okay. So now Paul and Barnabas, right? Paul and Barnabas are preaching to Gentiles, but there's Jews there. But look at their message. I'm going to show you a miracle. This is, this is insane in the membrane, man. You just look at this. Okay. Look at Acts 13 verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. Question, who's he talking to? Jewish people, they know the Old Testament. Gentiles don't know the Old Testament. Okay, so he's talking to Jews. He says, those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. And so he's preaching, right? For those of you who live in Jerusalem, etc., etc. Okay, and then he preaches. Okay, so, and then look at verse 36. For David, who's David? Where's he from? Old Testament. So again, who is this message catered to, Jews or Gentiles? What do you think? Jews, right? So if you're a Gentile, you might just ask the question, who on earth is David? David Robinson? What? Who's David? All right. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So now... It includes Jews and Gentiles because it tells you in verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him, even though Paul was preaching the Old Testament. So Paul's preaching the Old Testament. He's preaching that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And look at verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And look at verse 48. I'm going to try not to cry. Look at verse 48. That's me and you. 
Are any of you guys Jewish? Any of you guys memorize the Torah? Any of you guys grow up with the Old Testament? And when the Gentiles heard this, I mean, did they understand, David? Did they even know the Old Testament? Did they know who Abraham is? Was Paul even talking to them? And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. Even though they couldn't, how did they understand it? They began rejoicing and glorifying what? The word of the Lord. But look at this. I called you. I desired you. I appointed you. I sent you, right? And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Even though the, the, the message wasn't understandable to them. They don't know who David is. They don't know who Abraham is. These are the Gentiles. The Jews were getting jealous. And it says the word of the Lord, verse 49, was spreading throughout the whole regions. Whole region. And then it talks about how the Jews are getting upset. Guys, that's a miracle. So you go in the name of Jesus, in the power of Jesus. And if they receive, that's your miracle. Because what you're bringing is a spirit-empowered, spirit-filled disciple bringing the spirit-inspired word of God to people. And if they get converted, that's a spiritual conversion. Not of our own works, but of the power of God. Big idea. One more time. Trust that when Jesus sends you on mission, he will provide you with everything you need to accomplish as well. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice because we've been touched by the Spirit. We rejoice because your word makes sense to us. But Lord, we know that that's by your grace and by your grace alone. Help us, Lord, to go in the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Even when we're tired, even when we don't have time, even when we think we don't have resources. Help us to know that you will provide everything we need because you've already provided the most important thing, which is our salvation in Christ. Lord, will we go with that exhortation and encouragement? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.